You're listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. You know, language changes over time. Something that was once bad in a negative sense can later be referred to as bad in a good sense. Or something sick that you once avoided can become something sick that is desirable. Even punctuation can shift with the passing of time. I remember my eighth grade English teacher drilled us on punctuation, how to properly use commas and periods and quotation marks and semicolons, because incorrect punctuation could result in incorrect understanding of what you were trying to say, let alone the points off of your homework for not getting it right in middle school English class. I heard in the media recently about a book that came out analyzing digital culture. And in the book, the author made note that when it comes to digital communication, like text messaging, that members of Generation Z and Millennials seem to agree that ending a sentence with a period is overly hostile and worse yet, extremely uncool. The conversation around the subject has shed some light on how for certain generational groups, ending text messages with a period, instead of just leaving off the punctuation, can be perceived as abrupt, unfriendly, insincere, or even that the sender of the message is annoyed. So instead of relying on punctuation to make the point, emojis are frequently used to convey context and intended meaning. Times sure have changed, and wait until my eighth grade English teacher gets wind of it. I can't imagine how she would have received my English homework if I had ended each sentence with a smiley-faced emoji instead of the proper punctuation. But who would have thought that the way you ended a simple text could cause such confusion and confuse the meaning? Well, while Paul does not focus on using any periods or exclamation marks or emojis with just the right expression to end the book of Galatians, he wants to make sure in the final passage that we read today that we do not misunderstand what he wants to make clear. On the last episode of Verbatim Word, we looked at sowing and reaping, that when we sow to our flesh, we will reap the same. And when we sow to our spirit, fruitful, eternal things flow forth from our lives. The Galatian church was encouraged to support those who were sowing God's true word into the culture and the world of their day. And to avoid the deception that living however I choose will not be met with repercussions when it is in opposition to God's good, proven, and tested truth. And that sowing in the good things of God requires patience, for the fruit is usually enjoyed in future seasons, compared to the instant satisfaction that seems to come with sowing to the flesh, but reaps corruption for far longer than the temporal gratification it may have brought. Today, we finish the book of Galatians, and Paul wants his readers to be clear on what he is trying to communicate to them, in case there is any doubt. And while he does not depend on the use of a period or lack thereof to clarify his message, He does not want the letter to end without them clearly understanding the most important elements of his message. So let's get to Paul's conclusion to the book of Galatians in chapter 6, starting in verse 11. Paul writes, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As Paul rounds the bend to come in for a landing after six chapters of thoughtful clarification and exhortation to his readers, he grabs the pen, or quill if you will, and with large letters makes the final arguments in his own handwriting so that no one will miss it or misunderstand what he finds so important. 
As we read other letters by Paul, it seems like he often enlisted the help of a scribe or some other writer to record his thoughts. I can imagine him pacing back and forth, engrossed in his thoughts, focused on the deep theology and application of the things of God. And as he deliberately and delicately articulated what he sensed the Holy Spirit wanted him to say, some faithful servant on the ministry team who had the spiritual gift of nice penmanship wrote down what he said, freeing Paul up to concentrate on the context. It was the original dictaphone or voice recording app. Other letters also record the tendency of Paul to enlist a scribe, but that he personally tended to sign off on his letters. In 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Paul closes that letter by saying, The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. Some believe that Paul closed out each letter in his own handwriting because it served as a validation and confirmation of his own authentic authorship. I guess fake news was a thing in Paul's day, too. And he wanted to make sure that the readers knew the words they received were truly his and the verifiable instruction of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Others note that scriptures seem to suggest that Paul may have had an eye disease and had very poor eyesight. Even in this letter to the Galatians, Paul mentioned in chapter 4, verse 15, that the Galatians would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him if they'd been able to. Perhaps that was also a reference to Paul's physical weakness? If so, we can imagine the well-worn apostle taking the quill from his scribe and signing off on his letters with large, rounded letters, exaggerated so he himself could see his own handwriting through blurred vision. But whatever the reason, Paul wants to make whatever he is about to share abundantly clear. It can be easy to check out at the end of things. In my own classroom as a teacher, students pack up their books and stuff them into their backpacks with five minutes of class remaining. Or at church, we can close our Bibles and start making a mental exit strategy when the pastor approaches the conclusion of a sermon, which often challenges us with the most profound action steps or application. We often check out too early. But Paul wants to make sure they do not miss what he is about to say. So much so that he punctuates it, not with periods or exclamation points or emojis, but with large letters, all caps, in his own words. But not because Paul feels that what he is about to say is so important, but because he knows that he has heard from God, and he does not want the reader to miss it. When we know we have heard from God, we must declare it. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 27, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in your ear, preach on the housetops. God may speak to us in a still, small voice or personal, intimate way, but often the application of those things has implications beyond us. And in a world full of those too distracted by other messages to listen to God, He sometimes enlists us to become His heralds of truth. In the Old Testament, when Jeremiah the prophet considered ceasing to declare the things that God spoke to him because the resistance and opposition were mounting, Jeremiah wrote in chapter 20, verse 7, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, speaking of the Lord, nor speak any more in his name, because people were so against the Lord's message, so Jeremiah was tempted to stay quiet so he could avoid conflict. He continues, But his word was in my heart 
like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. He couldn't hold it in anymore. The truths of God are too important to be left unheard. And Paul would not forego this opportunity to speak the truth, and he took the quill in his own hands to boldly, with large letters, make it clear. And what exactly does he find to say at the end of this letter to the Galatians? He has already spelled out for them some pretty profound truths. What could he possibly add? In verses 12 and 13, Paul writes, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. As Paul closes this letter, he knows the tendencies of the false teachers. The Judaizers love to swoop in on the tail of Paul and muddy and meddle with the fresh work that he had just done. So in this final section of the letter, Paul wants to remind them of the motivation and methods of those he had stood up against the entire letter, because he knew that they would be hot on his tail as soon as he put his pen down and the ink dried on the parchment. Beware, beware, Christian. The enemy does not let a good work of God go undisturbed. When the Lord works, the enemy seeks to quickly disrupt or rob or steal, just like in the parable of the sower. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. So it is in our lives. The practical ways the enemy seeks to rob us of the good, fruitful seed of the word of God. Like when we sit with Jesus for a satiating quiet time, then get behind the slowest driver on the way to work, and we are robbed by being lured to react in the flesh. Or we hear the word preached mightily, then fight and argue over something petty on the way home from service. Or set out with good intentions to pray or seek or worship the eternal living God, but the electronic thieves pull us away through some form of media or digital messaging to something so petty and temporal. Or we lay a firm foundation in the solid things of God, only to be met with doubting and critical voices that taunt us by asking, did God really say? Be warned, the enemy will seek to rob us. So Paul reminds them of some key truths. He reminds them of the true motives of the Judaizers. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer the persecution for the cross of Christ. Their desire was to make a good showing in the flesh. Not every desire is a godly desire. Just because we feel it or want it or lean that way. And their desire was to make a good showing in the flesh. This was truly the tendency of the Pharisaical-induced faith of many in those days, to focus on the outward with no regard to the inward, to make a good showing in the flesh only. In verse 12, this good showing in the flesh involved circumcision, a surgical procedure that took just seconds instead of the transforming work of Christ's life being born in me, which takes patiently enduring and walking in an abiding relationship with God. Beware of quick spiritual transformations. 
Now, we know Jesus pulls us from darkness to light. Paul himself, in his own testimony, was changed on the road to Damascus. But after salvation, there is a sanctification process that conforms me into Christ's image. And more often than not, that sanctification takes time in many areas of of our lives. Often the Holy Spirit does work miraculously, instantaneously in our lives. An old habit is purged. We are delivered from what was once a a life-dominating sin. We plead at the altar to change our tongue or lift a burden or renew our mind. And God moves quickly, and we see His delivering and transforming power. But a lot of the sanctification work of making me more like Jesus takes time. As He works in me deeply, challenging our flesh and inviting us to learn to walk in new patterns of the Spirit that we don't always get right the first time around. These Judaizers wanted to make a good showing, but by a quick outward change. And they were more focused on the outward than the inward transformation. Letting God work fully in our lives takes time because it all centers on a growing, ever-deepening relationship. It's a metamorphosis, a true transformation, not a quick patch-up job, but a renewal, a restoration, a complete gutting and rebuilding. Paul mentions in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word for workmanship is poema, a work of art. Not something that is thrown together like a class project you did the night before it was due, but a true, beautiful work of art. Works of art take time. The process of going from a concept or idea in the artist's mind until it is fully produced for others to appreciate is not to be rushed. For example, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel took an enormous amount of time to complete, and he worked at it alone. Michelangelo approached it in two phases. The first phase took four years of his life, from the year 1508 until 1512, and resulted in the beautiful ceiling frescoes. And the second phase produced the famous painting of the Last Judgment, which took six years, from 1535 to 1541. Michelangelo could not be rushed, and he needed a break too, apparently, it seems, to finish it in the way he imagined it to be, taking almost a 23-year break between phase one and phase two of the project, probably to catch a second wind. And God, the divine creator and artist, takes his time and breaks from time to time, it seems, as he conforms us into his image. No quick surgery or decision or move can speed us through the process. And that is something the Galatian believers needed to remember. Buying the lie of the Judaizers that going to the law and circumcision could make them more righteous instantaneously was not the truth. There are no shortcuts in the work of God. Paul also wants to expose the motivation of these legalistic teachers one last time. He says, These would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ, and that they may boast in your flesh. Their motivation to, quote, help you is purely selfish. Because their sales pitch that the law is better and you should return to it is false, because even they cannot keep the law. Because as we mentioned in previous podcasts, no one can 100% of the time. So it is pretty hypocritical to invite you back to it. 
But what is more, Paul says, they are using you to avoid persecution for themselves. Just where might this persecution come from? Well, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, the message that the Savior was crucified on the cross stumbled the Jews and was foolishness to the Greeks. And to stand up for the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus meant persecution from both sides. From the legalistic Jews, the pressure to go back to the law was clear. And to become a Christian meant that you were now part of a sect, a sect that had roots in Judaism, but had now evolved into something else. And in the Jewish culture, your faith and belonging to the community was everything. To stand as a Christian who trusted in the cross only and not the law meant potentially being kicked out of the synagogue, the very center of the local community. It meant potentially being shunned by your neighbors or your family and losing business at your trade as people in the community stopped coming to your shop or buying the goods you were selling since now you are part of a sect. And by standing for the cross, the Jews would feel convicted since they had blindly cried out, crucify him, crucify him, and assented to his death, though God did use it for his glory and for their salvation too. It would get so bad, in fact, that Jesus told the disciples the night before he went to the cross, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service, as quoted in John 16 verses 1 and 2. And if persecution from your own countrymen was not enough, the secular culture was just as much of a threat. To be a Christian, one who testified of the cross of Christ, meant you had broken off from Judaism of sorts. And while the Romans recognized the Jewish faith, they did not recognize the new sect of Christianity as a legitimate or state-approved faith at first. So if you were one of those Christians, political persecution would result. And things got pretty bad for Christians under Roman emperors like Nero. So these Judaizers were tempting the Christians in Galatia and other places to go back to circumcision to avoid the persecution. It was sort of a, just do it to make life easier. I mean, you can just take the mark of circumcision outwardly, but inwardly you can remain faithful to Jesus, can't you? Be careful. Jesus said in Matthew 10, But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Standing with Jesus will not always guarantee smooth sailing. But know this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. While the false teachers wanted to boast that they had potentially won some of the believers in Galatia back to the law, Paul would choose to boast in something else, according to verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul would not boast in anything but in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in our nature to want to boast, isn't it? About the touchdown we made against all odds, or the fish we caught that got away, or we announced via bumper stickers that our kid made the honor roll, or share with the social media world the new talent our child mastered, or the personal achievement we made. We desire the affirmation that we did something exceptional and noteworthy. But that is the point Paul makes here. He knows he has done nothing exceptional or noteworthy when it comes to the things of God. He knows he is a fallen man given over to the things of the flesh. 
But through the death of Jesus on the cross and, and his burial and resurrection, all that is good in Paul's life is from Jesus, not himself. So he can only boast in what Christ has done for him. God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And in the ESV version, it says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. What do we have to boast of? Anything good and noteworthy in our life was given to us by God for his purposes and for his glory, not to build our own fan clubs or become esteemed in the eyes of others. Our wisdom, our might, our riches, nothing to boast in. But we can boast in this, Jeremiah said, that we understand and know the Lord, not in a puffed up, prideful, holier than thou self-righteous way, but that we have been adopted by him into his kingdom, that what our father speaks is truth and that we are on the winning team. In fact, it is a waste of time and breath to boast in the temporal vain things of this life as Paul shares his perspective in verse 14. He will boast only in the cross of Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross was the instrument of capital punishment the Roman tool to rid the world of criminals and misfits who had been proven a detriment to society and their justice system. In reflecting on that, Paul sees that since he came to put his faith and trust in Jesus' work for him on the cross, since he was bought by the blood that was shed there, the world had been crucified to him and he to the world. The life vein that had once connected Paul to the world, the umbilical cord that had once tethered him to this world, had been severed. He had been crucified to it, died to it, removed from it. What does that imply if the world has been crucified to me, if it is dead to me? Its draw, its power, its influence, its attraction, its authority no longer have the ability to shape me. I can be free and independent of being shaped and molded by this world. Paul noted that we are free to, freed up to do when we are crucified to this world in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When we have been freed from the draw of the world, its enticement, its lure, that sanctifying work can truly take place. And we are no longer bound to its will and desire to manipulate and control us, but free to pursue and fulfill the will of God. This is the challenge for many, a carnal Christian. Desiring to walk with Jesus, but the draw of the world is still so strong. They have not yet had the world crucified to them, Jesus put it bluntly in Luke 17, 32, when he said, Remember Lot's wife? Ouch, poor Lot's wife. Invited to leave Sodom and Gomorrah, considered part of the righteous remnant that Abraham pleaded on behalf of, divinely invited to leave before the judgment of the wicked city fell, and yet the world had not been crucified to her. 
it still had a pull and an influence. Though she had stepped out positionally, her heart and desires had not. And when she turned back to look, she became a pillar of salt, fruitless, lifeless, motionless. Paul also said that he had been crucified to the world. He had been freed from its ability to influence him, control him, use him as a puppet, manipulate him, enslave him. He was truly free to live for Jesus and follow him. A man seeking to follow Jesus, one of his disciples said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Until a death occurred, this man was not truly free. And as we seek to follow Jesus fully, a a crucifixion needs to take place, our own. As Paul profoundly said back in chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Until that happens, the world will relentlessly pursue us and seek to lure us away from Jesus. Well, it does not mean a life of asceticism, devoid of interactions with the world and society around us. It means that we live and function in the daily reality of another kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, an existence in which we can be in the world, but not of the world, pitching our tents, but not laying foundations, aliens and strangers who are just passing through because we were not made for this world. As John wrote in his first epistle in 519, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. All that we see and hear going on in the world around us, it's under the sway of the wicked one. But we know that we are of God, crucified to this world, but resurrected in his kingdom. And he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. How can we boast in anything when he has done it all for us? Verse 15 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. This, my friends, is Paul's concluding statement his summary of all that he has written. It's his cliff's notes of the book of Galatians, his period at the end of the sentence, that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything before God. Apart from being a new creation, that is the bottom line. Are you a new creation in Christ? Are you born again? Or are you still seeking to be righteous in your own merits? Trying to please God by what you can do instead of receiving his forgiveness and grace, that will avail nothing. The law will save no man. You must be born again. You must be a new creation. As Paul concludes the letter, he makes a few closing remarks in verses 16 through 18. He writes, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God, From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Paul had faithfully walked with Jesus, and he encourages us to do the same. And walking with Jesus had not been easy. In fact, he bore in his body the marks of his devotion to Christ. He bore in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The word is stigmata. Some claim at times to receive physical or mystical manifestations mirroring the wounds of Christ, known as stigmata, but I do not think Paul means that. 
There was nothing mystical about his wounds. He had been beaten and flogged for his testimony and witness, imprisoned and shipwrecked, hungry and naked. He had suffered for Christ. Stigmatas or marks were not a foreign concept in those days. Some were marked with the name of their God in the pagan temples, even there in the temple in Phrygia, marking themselves as devotees to the God they worshipped. Some bore the mark of a master, a sort of branding, showing your devotion and service to an earthly master. Some soldiers marked themselves with the name or symbol of their general, showing their commitment to the one they were taking orders from and their identification with the cause and defense they were providing. Paul bore the marks of Christ, the one he worshiped, the one who was master of his life, the one who he was fighting for and receiving orders from. Those who were troubling them in Galatia were even doubting Paul's authority. But Paul says, I have the marks to prove it. Now leave me alone. And with that, he signs off on the letter, leaving them with a blessing when he says, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Concluding his letter with the point he had been driving home all along, grace. It's the foundation of the gospel, grace. Amen and amen. At the close of the letter, Paul emphasized the new creation once again, a new creation. It is the hope for us as individuals as well as for this world. The world is broken. It has been since the Garden of Eden, and it appears it is currently on its last cylinder, running on fumes. But the promise of a new creation is what must be our hope. In Revelation 21, we read, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. There is a new creation to look forward to for those who are born again. And the one who sits on the throne above told John to write it down that the promise was true and faithful. It would come to pass. And the promise he describes there remind us, reminds us that this world is not our home. John wrote, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This, my friends, is what the world needs today. The promise of a new creation for those who are new creations. This world is not our home. And we cry out, Maranatha, Lord, come. <laughs>